And we want to look at verses 1 through 12. Matthew 3, 1 through 12, the ministry of John the Baptist. And let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. We thank you for the the living word of God. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is our teacher. And uh, Lord, there are things uh, you want us to know as we study and uh, make it possible for us to know through the through the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit and uh, through human teachers as well. So give me grace to teach accurately and clearly and uh, in a way that edifies your people. And Lord, if there are those listening that have not yet come to true saving faith, uh, Lord, work in their hearts to bring them to that point as well. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. The ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, we note uh, the theme of the book is Christ the King. And we have been through chapter 1 and chapter 2. We are now in chapter 3, the Herald of the King and uh, his baptism, the King's baptism. And so that's uh, where we find ourselves. Matthew 1 gives us background detail uh, on the genealogy of Jesus Christ, emphasizing he is the son of David, which was necessary in order for him to be the Messiah. Uh, he was to be called Jesus, which literally means God Savior. You should call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And furthermore, uh, he was to be called Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Thus, as the divine human Messiah, he was born king of the Jews in fulfillment of prophecy as seen in chapter 2. And in the sovereignty of God, as a young child, the family of Jesus moved to Nazareth in Galilee, fulfilling the prophetic scriptures that, would, that depicted that he would be a despised person. Nazareth had a bad reputation, and to be called a Nazarene, that is a person from Nazareth, uh, was really to be looked down upon in, in contempt. And this was indeed the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ as he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Well, that brings us now to chapter 3. And let's uh, pick it up. Chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. In those days, evidently referring to the days in which Jesus was still living in Nazareth, Prior to the start of Christ's public ministry, this man by the name of John the Baptist burst onto the scene. Now realize it had been about 400 years with no prophetic voice on the scene. Between, between the prophet Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and John the Baptist was a period of 400 years. No prophets. No prophets on the scene during that time. Now, yes, surrounding the birth of Christ, there had been some personal and individualized revelation from angels in relationship to Mary and Joseph, in relation to the shepherds and the Magi. But as far as prophetic ministry, John the Baptist was the first prophet in 400 years to come on the scene. And notice where he comes. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. John soon became known as John the Baptist because baptism was so prominent in his ministry. And this is uh, true in terms of the biblical record as well as non-biblical resources such as Josephus. Uh, they all refer to John in this way, John the Baptist. And uh, to say John the Baptist is really uh, the sense of John the Baptizer. Uh, but his baptism was not merely an outward ritual, as our study this morning will show. 
Uh, his baptism stood for something. Namely, it symbolized repentance. It made the statement, if you're being baptized, it made the statement, I am a repenter. Now, John had a very unique ministry. He did not enter onto the uh, religious scene. Uh, he did not minister in synagogues or in the temple complex area. Uh, rather, he came preaching in the wilderness. Now, if you hear someone hollering at the top of their lungs in the wilderness, you might think they're crazy, right? I mean, what's, what's, carrying on, what's going on over here? But in John's case, it drew an audience. By the way, John the Baptist is the only preacher in Scripture that does this, which sets him apart completely. He's a very unique preacher. You know, in all the Bible, we don't have anybody else doing exactly what John the Baptist did. And this is exactly the way Isaiah prophesied the forerunner to the Messiah would come on the scene as he predicted this 700 years earlier in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3. Note uh, what it says there, the prophet Isaiah, uh, chapter 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness... And the location here is very important. He's crying in the wilderness. He's not crying in the synagogue. Crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who does this? I mean, who's crying out here in the wilderness? Who, who does this? Well, one uniquely called of God who came fulfilling prophecy, which in effect served to affirm the Messiahship of Jesus. You see, the true Messiah had to have a forerunner who comes crying in the wilderness. And so this fits the Messianic profile of Jesus perfectly. He had to have such a forerunner, just as seen in the person of John the Baptist. And everything about the ministry of John really served as a convicting rebuke to the religious establishment of the day that had become very wealthy, self-righteous, and elitist. The dress, demeanor, message, and even place of ministry all were part of the prophetic ministry of John the Baptist. Part of a, a comprehensive message. In fact, the whole scene surrounding the story of Jesus makes a statement regarding this. That God really works often in unconventional ways that are contrary to the way people would do things. I mean, the shepherds associated with the birth of Christ, they were societal outcasts. The magi who came from the east were Gentiles. God's ways are not man's ways. God clearly was not operating according to the status quo of the religious system. Uh, John came as a very humble man. He didn't come with a bunch of fancy robes on. I mean, he kind of looked a little coarse in that camel's hair. I mean, a little crude. I mean, I'm not sure he's going to... Oh, do we want him as the forerunner? Do we want him as the, the out front spokesman? Uh, no. I'm sorry, John. You don't look the part. But God uses the humble. Isaiah 15, or 57, 15 says he dwells with the humble. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29 says God mainly uses those who in the eyes of the world are foolish, weak, based, despise nothings. God consistently works contrary to the religious establishment. 
People are always looking for a success formula that makes sense to them. You know, here's what you need to do and you'll be successful. And yet God so often does his thing completely outside the box of human thinking. And John the Baptist is a great example. I mean, if you're going to write a book on how to start a movement, you would never write your first chapter on the model provided by John the Baptist, would you? Uh, where is the wilderness around here? Should, uh, my suggestion is you go out there and start hollering and see how that works for you. Uh, nobody, would, nobody would do this. It just doesn't work this way. It would never work. And yet, it did. One day, someone heard this loud voice crying in the wilderness. The word spread and the crowd started coming. Now, the wilderness of Judea, you understand, was a barren wasteland. We, we think of a wilderness, we think of trees, lots of trees. Really, wilderness is more the idea of a desert-type area. A barren wasteland. It was uh, the area immediately west of the Dead Sea. And most everything around the Dead Sea immediately is, is kind of dead-looking. Uh, John probably came preaching along the northern end of the Dead Sea, near to where the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. Well, that's helpful. (laughs) It's right up in this area. You can't see it, but the Jordan River is running from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. So just imagine in your mind uh, the Jordan River. And we think he was, you know... This area here, the wilderness of, of Judea, right along the Dead Sea. But we think he was right up in this area, right here at the, at the mouth of the, uh, where it flows into the, the Dead Sea, the Jordan River. That's, that's where most people think it was happening. We'll see how this next picture looks. Yeah, there you go. Uh, that's, a, that's a great place to start your ministry, right there. Um, my goodness. I mean, nobody would come up with this. And like I say, nobody else did this. John the Baptist is unique crying out in the wilderness and had to be so to fulfill prophecy. It's amazing how it all fits just perfectly as, as God ordained it. John Philip says, John appeared in the wilderness of Judea in an uninhabitable region running the entire length of the Dead Sea. We would have thought that such a place was an unlikely area in which to conduct an evangelistic campaign. I would think so. One thing it has going for it is there's lots of, lots of space. Probably not a lot of government regulations out there. <laughs> you could even social distance out there. Uh, anyway, uh, but no kidding. Uh, if, if you send me out here to preach, I'm going to really wonder what you think about my preaching. I, go, go preach in the wilderness. <laughs> I'm going to take it that, uh, yeah, it's kind of like go sing, on, sing a song for me on a hill far away, you know, or something like that. Uh, this is not the way people do things. I'm telling you, this is totally unconventional. But it was a God thing. It was a fulfillment of prophecy thing. And again, uh, 700 years prior to this, It was prophesied by Isaiah. Only God could do this. So he shows up in the wilderness. And what's he doing? What's his message? Seeker friendly? Not so much. Verse 2 and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
The first recorded word of John's message is repent. And really, that is his message. You could boil it down to that's it. There's more detail as we will see. But this is the crux of his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. David Gazik says, The call to repentance is important and must not be neglected. It is entirely accurate to say it is the first word of the gospel. Repent was the first word of John the Baptist's gospel. Repent was the first word of Jesus' gospel, Matthew 4, 17. Repent was the first word in the preaching ministry of the 12 disciples, Mark 6, 12. Repent was the first word in the preaching instructions Jesus gave to the disciples after the resurrection, Luke 24, 46 to 47. Repent was the first word of exhortation in the first Christian sermon, Acts 2, 38. Repent and be baptized. Repent was the first word in the mouth of the Apostle Paul through his ministry, Acts 26, 19, and 20. Yeah, there is, there is a consistent emphasis on repentance throughout. The word repent literally means to change your mind. Uh, repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of direction in the life. Note verse 8 where John tells the religious leaders to bear fruits worthy of repentance. There is uh, the nature of repentance does bear fruits in the life. It does bear, bring about change. So true repentance is seen in the fruits of a changed life. What John called on the people to repent, saying, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is why you need to repent. The kingdom is at hand. Now, Matthew consistently uses the terminology kingdom of heaven 32 times. Instead of the parallel kingdom of God used in the other gospels. Now you realize that Matthew is writing to Jews. And uh, there's, uh, there's a reason he probably is using kingdom of, of heaven instead of kingdom of God. They are essentially interchangeable. Uh, what we find how it's using Matthew, uh, same context over here in one of the other gospels, it's translated as kingdom of God. So we believe that these two are interchangeable. But we believe that Matthew used this uh, phraseology, kingdom of heaven, probably because of the Jews' sensitivity uh, in you, to, you, to not want to use the name of God for fear that they would use it in vain. Jews were really sensitive as far as even saying uh, the word God. Because thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So they thought, well, the safest way to just, is just avoid using the name God. We think that's probably why Matthew, instead of kingdom of God, says kingdom of, of heaven. It was an accommodation, evidently, to Jewish scruples. Well, the kingdom is the big idea in Scripture. Where are you all going, huh, as believers? Where are you going? Well, I know where you're going. You're going out to lunch at noon, right? No, no, no. Uh, you're going ultimately to the kingdom. That's destination kingdom. That's where we're going. We're going to the kingdom. You've got a, a millennial phase and then an eternal phase, but it's the kingdom. We're headed to the kingdom. Dr. Michael Vlock says, quote, the kingdom of God is the great and grand theme of scripture. And indeed it is. The whole of redemptive history is moving towards the kingdom. The kingdom in view is the literal messianic kingdom prophesied about in the Old Testament scriptures. People got all kinds of ideas about the kingdom. and They use it in such, you know, all kinds of ways out here that really are not tethered to scripture very consistently. Wycliffe Bible Commentary 
The title, Kingdom of Heaven, peculiar to Matthew in the New Testament, is based on Daniel and gives references. It refers to the Messianic kingdom promised in the Old Testament of which Christ was about to be presented as king. I think that's true. This is the kingdom reign of the Messiah on earth. Uh, With the king of the Jews now on the scene, the kingdom was being presented to Israel on the condition, wait for it, on the condition of repentance. Being at hand means it was imminent with the sense that it was being offered. The Old Testament scriptures are very clear that before the kingdom can come, there must first be repentance in Israel. Thus, John was calling Israel to repent so that the kingdom could be ushered in. Peter emphasized this very condition as he was preaching to the Jews in Acts chapter 3, 19 through 21. Notice what he is saying to the Jews. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so the times of refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord. That's a descriptive term related to the coming messianic kingdom. Repent so the kingdom can come, and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, that's the kingdom, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. What's the condition? Repent so the kingdom can come, is really what he's saying. Before the kingdom can come, the Messiah Before the Messiah can come and set up his kingdom, there must first be repentance in Israel. And until Israel comes to repentance, the kingdom will not come. Uh, Let me uh, just give a little footnote on uh, God's kingdom program, just an overview, a broad brush overview of God's kingdom program. We have, I think, essentially a kingdom mandate given to mankind, uh, given to Adam uh, in uh, the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, uh, God gave dominion to mankind over the earth. God intended for man to rule the earth for him. That's always been his plan. Well, fail, fail the fall of mankind. Satan the usurper. Now says it's been given to me and I, you know, I, I have authority now to, to give it to whomever I will. Psalm 8.6 is very clear that, however, the kingdom mandate concerning mankind, uh, the ultimate destiny of, of mankind and this uh, dominion mandate does continue. And then we move on in further revelation, 2 Samuel 7, we have the kingdom mandate promised through David, through the Davidic line. And then we come to the New Testament 1 Corinthians 15 and Hebrews 2, the kingdom mandate to be fulfilled in Christ, the last Adam. So what God intended in relationship to the first Adam, fail. But it will yet be accomplished in relationship to mankind in the second Adam, in the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to fulfill the kingdom mandate given in Genesis to Adam and to fulfill the Davidic covenant given to David. Ruling the earth for God is still mankind's destiny, and it will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. God's plan is for humanity to rule the earth for his glory, and this will yet be fulfilled in the person of Christ and his followers. I've got a couple slides uh, from uh, quoting Dr. Michael Vlock. 
The millennial kingdom will highlight the successful reign of the last Adam in the reign where the first Adam was tasked but failed. When Jesus comes again, he will share his reign with those who identify with him. There you go. Uh, That's the bottom line. And then he also says this. There must be a successful reign of man. And the last Adam, Jesus, from and over the realm where God tasked the first Adam to rule. And so that, that will be accomplished in the millennial phase of the kingdom that merges then into the eternal state. But uh, what God started in Genesis is yet going to be fulfilled. He's going to bring it about. And he has brought up, devised a plan in which it can happen through the man, through the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the kingdom that Messiah will bring in is the Davidic kingdom. I want to emphasize that. Which really corrects a lot of bad kingdom theology out here, by the way. But the kingdom that the Messiah will bring in is the Davidic kingdom. Which is why Matthew traces Christ's genealogical record back to David and places such an emphasis on it. I want you to note this. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the disciples had this question. We read in Acts 1.6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore, restore the kingdom to Israel? I want you to zero in on that word that I've underlined, restore. You see, the kingdom the Messiah brings is a restored kingdom. You say, well, I think it's just an all new thing. No, it's building on something. It's a restoration of something. Meaning, it is a kingdom they once had. What is this kingdom? Well, it's the Davidic kingdom. God promised the throne and the kingdom to David's line forever in the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And ever since the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, at the time of the Babylonian captivity, there has never been a rightful Davidic king sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. Been a long dearth. No Davidic king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, on David's throne. Finally, the Messiah came. The Messiah king came. Finally, the one to whom the throne rightfully belongs came. And what did Israel do? Did they repent? Did they receive their king? The king of the Jews? No, they rejected Jesus Christ. And so the kingdom has been put on hold. However, it was legitimately being offered to Israel at the time John the Baptist, on the uh, condition of repentance, said, the kingdom is at hand. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. This is what John meant when he said, repent for the kingdom is, is at hand. It was being offered. One more thing. After the death of Christ and the inauguration of the church, the apostles no more spoke of the, kingdom, of the gospel of the kingdom. You don't find that. Uh, this has been put on hold. 
Instead, today, what we are holding forth is the gospel of the grace of Christ, or as it is simply called, the gospel of Christ. However, Christ in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 spoke of a future time in the tribulation period, that's the context, where the gospel of the kingdom will once again be proclaimed front and center. It's Matthew 24, and again, uh, you always want to think in context. I think maturity and discernment begins to think in context. We don't just lift a verse out and say, well, I'm attached, whatever. No, we think in context. And the context here is in the tribulation period. And Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the, king, of the coming kingdom, will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom was presented to Israel at Christ's first coming on the condition of repentance. They did not repent, and so God is now building his church through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the church is complete, the gospel of the kingdom will then once again go forth. Suddenly, after 400 years of prophetic silence, this prophet, John the Baptist, burst onto the scene, crying out in the wilderness, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To which the question may well have been asked, Who in the world is this guy anyway? Matthew answers that question. Here's who he is. Verse 3. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This is that most unusual prophet prophesied 700 years before by the prophet Isaiah. Who comes crying in the wilderness. Now in verse 1 it says John the Baptist came preaching. Really, the idea of preach there means to herald or to publish. Often, royalty in Bible times had heralds that went before them to announce their coming and to prepare the way before them so that they might have a grand reception. And that's the idea here. The Messiah had his God-ordained herald that went before him to prepare the way. John MacArthur says the wilderness was a full day's journey from Jerusalem and seems like an odd location to announce the arrival of the king. Yeah, it does. But it is perfectly in keeping with God's ways. Amen. But note who John the Baptist was preparing the way for. Yes, he was preparing the way for the king. But much more than just an average king. You caught it, right? What does the verse say? Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And the Hebrew has the word Yahweh there. Make straight in the the desert a highway for our God. God is Elohim. John was preparing the way for Yahweh. The most sacred name for God in the Old Testament, as the Jews understood it. And just so we don't miss it, the text says he called the people to make a highway for our God. Who did John prepare the way for? Who is he preparing the way for? For Jesus. For God. Exactly. Uh, Jesus is here identified as Yahweh. 
which is common, by the way, in the New Testament. Here we plainly have a reference about Yahweh and Elohim, God, applied directly to Jesus. You want evidence that Jesus is God? Well, right here is a major evidence. The plain sense is that the God whom John prepared the way before was Jesus. And of course, this is totally consistent with the doctrine of the Trinity as found in the scriptures. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equally God. The one Godhead of the Bible. Repentance prepares the way for a right reception of the Messiah. Make his path straight is a poetic way of describing, uh, get right, get straight with God on the basis of repentance. This is the appropriate way to welcome and receive the Messiah. This fact of the prophesied forerunner is a huge, huge deal. Because it becomes further proof that Jesus is indeed the prophesied Messiah. In fact, all four Gospels unanimously preface the ministry of Jesus Christ with the ministry of this forerunner, this prophesied forerunner, John the Baptist. The Gospel record of the forerunner. It's in all the Gospels. It's a major point. If he's not in place, he's not the Messiah. The Messiah had to have this forerunner. It's emphasized in all all four Gospels. Verse 4, now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Hmm. Hmm, hmm, What are we having for dinner today? You know, John was not a sophisticated man. His dress was made of rough camel's hair, very coarse stuff, not very comfortable. His diet was very basic. Locusts were essentially large grasshoppers eaten by the poorest of people. I mean, out here on, in, the, in the wilderness, in the desert, what do you find to eat? Well, there's some locusts out here. <laughs> yeah, let's go for that. That's what John did. He lived off the land, way out in the wilderness, away from everybody. He did not pursue the comforts of life, but rather lived a very separated life out in the wilderness, where his focus was uniquely on God and his special calling. This rudimentary and austere lifestyle was characteristic of the prophets in the Old Testament. They did not live a life uh, of self-centered comforts, but rather one of sold-out dedication to God. In fact, when Jesus described the ministry of John the Baptist, it's interesting how he described him in Matthew 11, 8 and 9. Where he says to Israel, but what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments, kind of like your elitist religious leaders wear their nice robes. And and boy, they they are the, boy, look at them, sharp dressers. Look look at them. Uh, That's not what you went out to see. A man clothed in soft garments? Eh, No. Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. I mean, as the forerunner, he had the highest of positions in terms of the prophets in that sense. John was a rugged individual who came in, are you ready for this? In the spirit and power of Elijah, as revealed to his father Zacharias by the angel in Luke 1.17. 
D.A. Carson says both Elijah and John had stern ministries in which austere garb and diet confirmed their message and condemned the idolatry of physical and spiritual softness. John Phillips says, John lived for one thing, to be a voice thundering at the conscience of his age. There was such a ring of genuineness to his voice and such an evidence of sincerity in his life that people responded. And notice they did. (laughs) Verse 5, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, many estimate that very possibly several hundred thousand people, some say perhaps as many as a million people ultimately came uh, to hear John preach. Certainly a great outpouring in this whole area, Judea, Jerusalem, the whole area around the Jordan came by the thousands, many thousands to hear John preach. At, At the time, for a time, it was the happening thing. Remember, his keynote message was repent, as noted in verse 2. And repenters would confess their sins. To confess means to admit or acknowledge. And as they admitted their sins and repented, meaning they had a, a change of mind resulting in a change of direction. They were willing to own up to their sin. Then John would baptize them. Their baptism was simply identifying them as repenters who were taking John's message to heart. Uh, Bible knowledge commentary, John's baptism was not the same as Christian baptism, for it was a religious rite signifying confession of sin and a commitment to a a holy life in in, uh, anticipation of the coming Messiah. The most basic meaning of baptism is that of identification. Uh, We could get into a, a, a long, I don't have time because I'm expositing the text here this morning, but take my word for it, baptism, the, the basic idea of baptism is identification consistently. In John's baptism, the people being baptized were identifying with his call to repentance. They were openly identifying as repenters. Christian baptism is identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a testimony of our faith that now identifies with Christ. Baptism doesn't save us, but is a testimony that we have been saved by faith in Christ. Well, John was preparing the way. And uh, he was preparing the way by calling people to repentance. And when they identified with that message, they indicated that in baptism. Verse 7, but there's a problem that develops. You know, here you go. Here's a problem. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, they weren't just coming to hear him preach, they were coming to his baptism. He said to them, brood of vipers, it's got an exclamation point here, brood of vipers, like that, (laughs) who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, that's who we're addressing They were the religious leaders in Israel. They were typically enemies, but they joined arms in their enmity and hostility against Jesus Christ. The word Pharisee means separated one. They numbered about 6,000, so there was not that many, and yet they had tremendous uh, religious influence. In fact, they were the major influence throughout the whole of of, uh, Judaism. They numbered about 6,000. They considered themselves to be people of the book. I mean, if anybody knew the book, it was the Pharisees. 
They were scholars. They, they claimed to live according to the law, both the written and then they also had this oral law that kind of protected the written law. You know, have all these rules around the other rules. You know, just an ever-evolving ring of rules, the, the oral law, to protect, you know, anybody from breaking the written law. So you've got 613 laws, but then you've got all these other laws according to the oral law. And they claimed that they lived according to all of these laws. They were extreme legalists and very self-righteous. Claiming they lived it. In their minds, if anyone was saved, it was them. But they were also hypocrites. Preaching one thing and practicing another. That's the thing about legalism. You never live up to all those rules. (laughs) And so you begin to make excuses and give yourself a, a certain kind of special pass. Their spirituality was only external. The Sadducees, fewer in number than the Pharisees, ran the temple and the priesthood. They tended to be very wealthy and considered themselves to be, ready for this, intellectuals. Always watch out for those people. Uh, They were the uh, religious liberals, liberal rationalists. They held only to the first five books of Moses, the the Pentateuch, the, the law of Moses. First five books of the Bible. They did not believe in the supernatural in angels, or in the resurrection. It's often quipped, therefore, that they were sad, you see. As the masses came out in a popular movement involving Jerusalem, all Judea, and the region surrounding the Jordan, these religious leaders, evidently not wanting to be uh, left behind in this overwhelming populist movement, also came out to John's baptism. They probably saw this as just another religious ritual. I mean, they were into that. That was now popular, and so they hypocritically jumped on board and claimed they too were wanting to receive the coming Messiah. Who doesn't want to get in on this this messianic movement here? Yeah, we after all the religious leaders. Yeah, we too want the Messiah to come. And that's what John the Baptist is all about, preparing for the coming Messiah. However, there is a little problem. They were not repentant, which was the key thing in John's preaching. You can't truly receive the Messiah without repentance. As these religious leaders came to get baptized, John said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And I think he said it. Very stern. He's a rugged guy anyway. And I think when he spoke, it was it shook you. This is some bold kind of preaching. I, I have really never spoke to an audience this way. I'm really not going to start this morning. <laughs> but this was speaking truth to power in a very unusual way. I mean, these were the powerful religious leaders who controlled the religious establishment in Israel. And here you have one man, this guy out in the wilderness, who's eating locusts, dressed with camels there, calling him to account, taking on the whole religious system, as it were. And John called them out for what they were. He calls them a brood of vipers, which is to say a family of poisonous snakes. Now, if that's not insulting, I don't know what is. Snakes! <laughs> It's almost humorous. 
You see, the serpent is a symbol of the devil. They were of the devil, and their false teaching was like deadly poison. Jesus, by the way, also referred to the Pharisees in this manner. In Matthew 23, 31, he said, Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? That's some pretty straight preaching too. John MacArthur says, Brood may be translated offspring, signifying descendants or children. Jesus used the same language, brood of vipers, to describe the Pharisees on several occasions. Vipers were small but very poisonous desert snakes, which would have been quite familiar to John the Baptist. I mean, that's where he was hanging out out there. When John says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I believe that he is speaking very sarcastically. You see, these religious leaders certainly did not consider themselves poisonous snakes. And they were not fleeing from the wrath to come. That's not why they were there. It is clear from verse 9, they thought their security was found in their physical relationship to Abraham. But the point is, they should have seen themselves for what they were, a brood of vipers, spiritually speaking. And they should have been fleeing from the wrath to come through repentance and confessing their sins. But they were not. So John, in effect, sarcastically jars their spiritual uh, sensibilities, or lack thereof, calling them out as spiritual snakes who need to flee from the wrath through repentance. This is the point John is making, I believe, in a very sarcastic manner. D.A. Carson says John's rhetorical question takes on a sarcastic nuance. Who warned you to flee from the wrath And come for baptism. When in fact you show no signs of repentance. By the way. Elijah was also a prophet given to sarcasm. And remember John came in the spirit of Elijah. In 1 Kings when Elijah had a showdown with the prophets of Baal. He sarcastically challenged their God to send down fire. Uh, This is from the New Living Translation. And here's how it went down. You know, it's like the, the God who answers by fire, let him be God, was the challenge. And so what's Elijah say to these guys? About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You have to shout louder, he scoffed. For surely he is a God. Sarcasm. He's not a God. Perhaps he is daydreaming or relieving himself. Perhaps he's on the toilet. Or maybe he's away on a trip. Or is asleep or needs to be awakened. You know what this is? This is sarcasm at its finest. And John the Baptist here also used cutting sarcasm. There is a place for it. At least in the ministry of a prophet. At least if you're John the Baptist. By the way, those not repentant never appreciate this kind of sarcasm. Uh, They tend to whine about the tone. The tone isn't right. Unrepentant whiners never appreciate the ministry of a true prophet. They just don't. The rugged cutting words of John were just too sharp for them. You see, they want lovey-dovey acceptance talk. But John straight talked repentance. 
I mean, he cut right through everything. A footnote here. The strongest of language was reserved for the religious crowd, those phony religious leaders. You know, we don't find John or Jesus using this kind of language to address, you know, other kinds of sinners. This is reserved for the religious leaders. Of all the people, they had no excuse and are most accountable. I believe the hottest hell is reserved for phony religious leaders. They are the worst. They preach from pulpits. They teach in seminaries. They're called Holy Father, Reverend, and the like. They are truly a brood of vipers. That have the wrath of God pursuing them. Verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. True repentance bears the fruits of a changed life. A true change of mind about sin and about God results in a change of direction in the life. We are not saved by the fruit, but rather by the faith. But if the faith is real, containing the element of repentance, it will show in the life. In order to escape the wrath of God's judgment and go into the kingdom, one must come to repentance. And this repentance must be real, affecting the entire lifestyle of a person. Genuine repentance results in a changed life. It's kind of kind of been the missing element in evangelical circles, in, in the evangelical gospel in many years. Where's repentance? Ironside warned of this many years ago. Repentance, the missing element in evangelical preaching. Moody Bible Commentary. True repentance was to be demonstrated by the production of good fruit, the absence of which negated the baptism and showed the repentance to be spurious. For Matthew, it is good fruit that provides the evidence that one is in right standing with God. Indeed, the Jews overlooked something very important. They had not properly understood that in order to enter the kingdom, one must come to repentance. They thought, you see, as children of Abraham, they automatically had a ticket into the kingdom. We are the favored Jews. We are the descendants of Abraham. John turned this on its head, claiming that repentance was necessary to escape the wrath of God in order to enter the kingdom. And he addresses their error in verse 9. Do not think to say, uh, say to yourselves, uh, note verse 8 again, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. The Jews in general, and the religious leaders in particular, had a false sense of security, depending on the fact that they were Abraham's descendants. Through the promised son Isaac. And by the way, I think that error continues today. Well, well you know, my, my children, uh, you know, my parents, uh, we're a Christian family. I remember I said this before I actually got saved. I was on a harvest crew and, and there was a guy witnessing to me. And I said, well, we're all Christians. <laughs> you know, we were all good Mennonite Christians. Except I wasn't. The Jews had that kind of mentality. They thought that Abraham was so special. That his favor with God sufficed not only for himself, but also for them as 
his descendants. Therefore, they said, quote, all Israelites have a portion in the world to come. Simply for being Jews, the descendants of Abraham. They spoke of the delivering merits of the fathers. Their trust was in their heritage. Their trust was simply in being Jewish, the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. John the Baptist rebuked this idea saying they should not think we have Abraham as our father as if that would deliver them from the wrath to come, but rather realize that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now, I'm very open for you to enlighten me on what he meant by that last part. What did John mean by saying God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones? Commentators are all over the place. It frankly is not real clear. Perhaps he was saying, don't put your stock in being physical descendants of Abraham. Rather, realize that God is able to take hearts of stone and through true repentance, make true children of Abraham out of them. This is what is necessary. Uh, back in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 36 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Note that. Take the heart of stone. Whatever the case, John was refuting the idea that physical heritage could save them. They needed a new heart. They needed to come to repentance so God could save them and bring them into the kingdom. Abraham's True spiritual descendants are those who share in the same faith as Abraham. Uh, this is all over the New Testament. Uh, Galatians 3, 7. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Well, this rebuke from John the Baptist had to really sting these Jewish leaders. I mean, you understand, they thought that God's wrath was reserved for non-Jews. They thought they were already sufficiently the children of Abraham, not vipers. They thought they were already guaranteed a place in the kingdom and did not need repentance. This was jarring to the core. And so he continues, more jarring words, verse 10. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The axe is a symbol of judgment that cuts down all who refuse to come to repentance. Every person who does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Mark it down, verse 10. In other words, all those who do not repent and bear good fruit in keeping with repentance are going to be cut down in the judgment of God and cast into eternal hell fire. Again, we see the kind of repentance that will enter into the kingdom is that which brings forth Good fruit. Genuine repentance is seen in good fruit. If there is no good fruit, there's no true repentance. The only way to flee from the wrath to come and safely enter into the kingdom is by way of sincere and true repentance. That is why John cried out, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to get into the kingdom, you have to repent. And in effect, he went on to say, If you're going to get there, it must be by way of repentance. William MacDonald, Christ's arrival and presence would test all men. Those found fruitless would be destroyed just as a fruitless tree is cut down and thrown into the fire. And this principle still applies. What is God waiting for? Why hasn't he come yet? 
Well, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to some count slowness. Say, well, boy, he's really dragging his feet on this. No, no, he's not. You understand what God's doing. He's patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to reach repentance. God's waiting for more people to come to repentance. And if they don't repent, what's going to happen to them? They're going to perish. That's the message of John the Baptist. As well as the whole New Testament. Verse 11. I indeed baptize with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John proceeded to contrast himself with the one he pointed to, stressing his overwhelming greatness. Not his, uh, but uh, the one to follow him. John indicates that his baptism signified repentance. We've already seen it didn't produce it. It simply testified of it. The key issue being the genuineness of repentance. This was John's ministry. He baptized repenters in preparation to receive the great coming one, the one coming after him. In this way, he identified them as those who were repentant. Hence, he was called John the Baptist. In emphasizing the greatness of this one coming after him, John said he was not even worthy to carry his sandals. This was the job of a slave. And he says, I'm not even in that, I'm, I'm not even in that category. John was considered by the general populace, you understand, to be a very holy man. So who could this person be coming after him? John's point certainly emphasized his surpassing greatness. To illustrate the contrast, John brings out that he baptized repenters with water. But this one coming after him would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. This coming one would be so great as to orchestrate the baptism of the Spirit and also the judgment of fire. Who could do this but God? Exactly. And that is the point made in verse 3. St. John prepares the way of the Lord. This one is so mighty and great that in fact he would be able to facilitate what only God can do because he in fact would be God come in the flesh. Now, there's some debate over whether baptizing with the Spirit and fire is two things or one. Some take it that the fire further qualifies the Spirit's ministry in relationship to God's people in the sense that he would bring about a purifying reality, and that is theologically true. However, both the immediate preceding context in verse 10 and the immediate following context in verse 12 both relate fire to the idea of judgment. So I take it that Baptism with fire here means the baptism of God's judgment. People will either experience one or the other. God's people who are repentant will experience spirit baptism. While those refusing to repent will experience a baptism of fire in the sense of God's eternal judgment. All of this will come from the hand of this great one for whom John was preparing the way. By the way, uh, I remember Jay Vernon McGee. You remember certain things he would say. I still remember it kind of in my ears. Or he was saying one time he was praying with a, a certain kind of charismatic guy. And, and, and uh, this guy was praying that uh, they would receive, receive baptism of the Spirit and of fire. And McGee said, I canceled out the last part of that prayer. <laughs> he, wasn't praying for, he wasn't praying for the baptism of fire. That's, that's a, the judgment of God. Spirit baptism anticipates the birth the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost. Note this connection. In the Old Testament, God promised that he would pour out his spirit in Joel chapter 2. 
On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came, as seen in Acts chapter 2. Peter describes this as a partial fulfillment of what Joel prophesied in the Old Testament, as seen in Acts 2, 16 through 18. But here's the point I want to make. Peter then went on to say this. Acts 2.33 Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He... Who's this He? Well, the one exalted to the right hand of God. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that's Jesus Christ. He, Christ, poured out this which you now see and hear. This baptizing work of the Holy Spirit that began on the day of Pentecost. Christ was behind it. This pouring out, baptizing of the Spirit was brought about by Jesus. It started with the Jews, then included the Gentiles, and became normative for every believer. Spirit baptism was initiated by Christ, and going forth applies to every believer. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, By one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. This is the glorious reality shared in by all of God's people in the church age. Stanley Toussaint says, throughout the Old Testament prophecies, uh, the, the Holy Spirit is associated with the coming of the Messiah. It is one of the marks which identifies him. Indeed it is. But a judgment day is also coming, which will happen at the hand of Christ. It is Christ in Revelation 5 who is worthy to open the seals of judgment on the world that eventuates in his second coming. In John 5.22, Jesus said the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. One day it is Christ himself who will say to the lost, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 12, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let me ask you something. Who has the winnowing fan? Who will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn? Who will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire? Well, it is none other than the one coming after John who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Again, this is describing what only God can do, emphasizing that Jesus is Messiah God. The Messiah would separate the wheat from the chaff. The winnowing fan was a a fork-like or a shovel-like instrument used to toss wheat and chaff into the air. The wind then blew away the chaff and the heavier grain fell into a pile to then be collected into the barn. This is descriptive of the Messiah Ultimately separating true believers, true repenters, from unbelievers, non-repenters. The wheat gathered into the barn represents repenting believers brought into the kingdom. The chaff that is burned up represents the unrepentant who will be turned into hell. Note the emphasis that the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire, meaning it never goes out. This is descriptive of eternal hellfire. Well, to wrap it up here, John was a no-nonsense prophet preacher. He told it like it is. If you want to see the kingdom, if you want to see the kingdom, you have to come to repentance. Only those who receive the Messiah with repentance will escape the wrath to come. True repentance is seen in the fruits of a changed life. 
The Messiah is so great that he baptizes with the Spirit and with the fire of God's judgment. It is he who will ultimately separate the wheat, true believers, from the chaff, unbelievers. Indeed, he is Messiah God. As prophesied by Isaiah, John the Baptist was his forerunner, who in calling the people to repentance, prepared the way for the Lord. And that Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, uh, when I grew up, and I'm getting to be older here, there was a comedian on the scene by the name of Red Skelton. Some of you old fogies will remember him. But this is a true story about Red Skelton. In 1951, he took a party of friends with him in a plane to Europe, and he was to perform in London. Well, as they were on, in route, in flight, over the Swiss Alps, guess what? Three of the plane's engines failed. The situation looked grave. People began to pray. Skelton went into one of his best comic routines to try and distract them. The plane was losing power and coming closer and closer to the mountain. At the last moment, the pilot spotted a clearing and was able to land the plane. Skelton broke the relieved silence by saying, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, you may now return to the evil habits that you gave up 20 minutes ago. <laughs> that, my friends, does not represent true repentance. That is not indicative of a true saving faith. To truly receive Jesus as Lord and Savior involves genuine repentance that is a life-changing reality. Receiving Christ in John's day involved repentance. And I submit to you, it does in our day as well. Repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you too will be saved. Let's have our closing song and then I'll close in prayer.